Hello. Welcome to Salem the Podcast. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Sarah Black. And I'm Jeffrey Lilly. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're going to be talking about the Salem Witch Trials. Dun, dun, dun. The, uh, cue the ominous music. Right? right? Yeah. Is, and it is. It's ominous. It's sad. It's depressing. It's it's a little dark. Yeah. It's a lot dark. It's a lot dark. It's kind of the darkest, I would say, the darkest part about Salem's history. Yeah. And yeah. kind of what put us on the map. So many people come here. They're like, ooh, Salem, bucket list, tours. Halloween. Yeah. yeah. Nah. <laughs> I actually, I had a guy on tour this past year, uh, about three quarters of the way through, he comes up to me and he's like, wow, this is kind of a downer. Yeah. <laughs> I was taken aback. I, I kind of looked at him puzzled. Like, what did you think this was going to be about? Well, they thought they would come here and, and, you know, a little hocus pocus. Yeah. A little bewitched. Little, yeah. And not so much death. No. And I think, I think they know, I think most people we went to high school, the crucible. Mm-hmm. They know we killed people and said they were executed. And that stuck with us for better or worse. I, I think it's, it's a complicated relation. Most relationships that we have with history are complicated. I couldn't agree more, but I think the Salem witchcraft trials are unique in, in a, in a significant amount of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, first and foremost, I think is our sort of uh, modern interpretation of what we call the witch city. Uh, Salem has has taken that for better or worse. If you're in the city, just look around. Yeah, our taxis are green. green. They, they got witches on them. I pulled out on Essex Street last week and I saw a, a utility van. And on the side of it, there was a big witch. Yeah. And it said, Witch City Heating and Cooling. So just a private and company. I, yeah, I kind of yeah. just chuckled to myself. Like, it's pretty common. Uh, if you see any of our uh, police walking around or driving around, their patch, their badge is a witch on a broomstick in front of a crescent moon. Our water tower has a witch on it. Our high school team. The witches. The witches. <laughs> like, like when I tell people, they're like, are you kidding? Like, no joke. We're the witch city. We have doubled down on that. Uh, but wow, is that good? Is that bad? Um, I, Definitely a point of contention. Yeah. And we will end up digging into this whole idea of commercialization versus education on the witch trials towards the end of the episode. But first, we kind of wanted to give you a general overview of the trials themselves. What what happened here in 1692. But understand that what we're about to offer, we're just scratching the surface. We'll give you more resources if you want to dig further in later on, but um, we're going to give you a, just kind of like an outline. And before we do that, out of the gate, let's clear up one misconception, sort of uh, pull back the curtain. By the way, when it comes to Salem witchcraft trials... There were no witches. Not a one. We no. may be the witch city, but... Uh, there, there are witches here today. Yes, uh, there, there many. There are people who, who practice a, a concept of, of Wiccan or paganism, their their rites, their rituals, their these sorts of things, um, wh- whether that's this, from the witch's ball to the vampire witches to whatever the case may be. First witch shop in America. Yeah. But in 1692, no witches. None. Everyone who was accused, put on trial, executed, died in jail... All innocent. And you have to remember, at the end of the day, these are all people living their lives. Yeah. It's frontier territory. They're struggling to begin with. Mm-hmm. So the trials themselves, I mean, this is nothing new. We had tens of thousands of people executed over in Europe for mm-hmm. witchcraft. And we even had some here in the colonies. 
definitely nowhere near that number, but dozens leading up to 1692. But Salem stands out because of the amount, the amount of people that were accused and the short amount of time it took place within. So when it's all said and done, you're looking at about 200 people accused, Uh, about 150 of them will end up in jail. 19 people are hanged, a man is pressed to death, and at least five die in prison. And this all takes place over just 13 months beginning to end. Of those 19 executed, 14 were women, five were men. Men can be witches too. Yep, men can be witches too. Uh, The accused, their ages range all the way down from four years old up into their 80s. And these accusations, they don't just take place here in Salem, stretches anywhere from Boston to up north into what is today Maine. So it's a very large uh, area that we're working with here. So while, while we call them the Salem Witchcraft Trials, little bit of a misnomer, they should probably be called the Essex County Witchcraft Trials. Yeah, That's where we're located. So it's Essex County. And one of the reasons we call them the Salem Witchcraft Trials is because the trials were held in Salem. So the accused came from all over. And we're going to get into a lot of those specifics. The guy pressed to death, Giles Corey, promise we'll talk about that. The people dying in jail, we'll talk about that. Uh, the people accused up in Maine, Reverend Burroughs, we'll talk about that. Yeah, keep in mind, this is just, we're scratching yeah, the surface yeah. so here. We've got a lot to cover. But let's break down the geography like a little bit more. A lot of you come to Salem, you're like, cool, uh, you know, this bar I ate or drank at, this restaurant I went to. When you're walking down Essex Street, Washington Street, when you're on the common, there's a small little area. It's pretty walkable. And in 1692, it looked a little different. Obviously, there was none of the brick. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so much brick now. So much brick. But back then, Salem, as it stands today, was Salem Town. The adjacent town of Danvers was Salem Village, and Peabody was Salem Farms. If you have trouble sort of remembering the difference here, uh, a town is bigger than a village. Right. Uh, Salem, the city, so Salem town, had about 2,000 people. Salem Village had about 500 people. So when Sarah says 200 or more people, that's a significant portion of the population. And we also need to understand that this all starts in Salem Village. It doesn't even start in in, in Salem town. And that's also important to the narrative. Mm -hmm. The first instances of an attack by a witch happen in Salem Village. That sort of helps us understand uh, so who was living here, where they were, so sort of how that geography also plays into the context. Yeah, and how rural this area was. Yeah. Salem, again, remember, these guys, these colonists have been here for, you know, 1620 they get here, 1626 they found Salem. It's only about 66 years old. That's within some people's lifetimes. Some, right. some of the people who were executed in Salem were older than Salem. Yeah, it's a baby city at this point. Absolutely. We're also right on the frontier. Like the woods are just about a mile out. And inside those woods, you've got pure darkness, terrible threats of all (laughs) types, um, a lot of fear these people were living in. Yeah. Salem stands unique, as as you mentioned, because of uh, sort of these numbers and these things. But one of, in my opinion, uh, the main contributing factor is that the Puritans believe this is the center of their theocracy in the New World. So they're coming here seeking that religious freedom. I mean, they were religious extremists, mm-hmm. um, but they believed this was their chosen land. They were God's chosen people. This was their city on a hill. And Salem, uh, named after Jerusalem, Salem means peace, as Jerusalem means the city of peace. So for there to be 
a witch in Salem, well, that would make complete sense because this is where the devil would target. If this is God's chosen city, that's the devil's going to come knocking at your door. It's not Boston. It's not Ipswich. It's not Gloucester. The devil's like, I'm going after the capital, like right here, the heart of, of your religion. These Puritans are living in a world where religion and law and science all is intertwined. They believe in demons and magics and familiars in the invisible world. And another tool that the devil has in his toolbox, which are witches. These people genuinely believed in witchcraft, believed in the yeah, devil. Yeah. This is not some, you know. Hocus pocus? No, it's not hocus pocus. <laughs> not like, a this bunch is, of hocus pocus? This is embedded in their belief system. Yeah. This is something that they've grown up with. Um, it's part of their, gosh, you could even say daily ritual. If something bad happens in their life, <laughs> blaming it on a witch or the devil is not it's new. It's no. very common, in fact. And almost, uh, you know, they're monotheistic in their beliefs, but they are almost pagan in their concept of the world. What I mean by that is um, if there's a bad storm, uh, a flood, Mm -hmm. a death in the family, you know, millennia before, you would have ascribed this to the will of the gods. Mm -hmm. And the Puritans are like, oh, if it's a negative thing, they ascribe it to an attack by the devil or the influence of the devil. If it's a positive thing, if it's a a child who's born healthy, if it's just the amount of rain you need for your crops, Mm -hmm. you're like, oh, oh, the God God has blessed us. And like looking back at these, you're like, okay, guys. (laughs) Just humans trying to find the answers. Um. Also, when we say witch, we should also understand that if I say, oh, think of a witch, uh, many people are going to think of Bette Midler from Hocus Pocus. (laughs) And I think it's generational. Their first narrative of their pop culture relationship with a witch. Right. Whether that's uh, Samantha. Samantha from Bewitched, the Wicked Witch of the West. Yeah. In in. Uh, Wizard of Oz. Wow. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. So people of our generation probably think about playing Quidditch, Harry, Voldemort, whatever the case may be. You think of that Dark Lord. And we're also living in a time where being a real witch is, is quite cap- normal, especially yeah. if you live here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And but this is not what wipe not at all wipe all of those things from your cultural narrative. There, there's no Quidditch. There's no Hogwarts. There's no, <laughs> ooh, my pretty. With the, no pointy. Well, okay, pointy hats yeah. kind of comes in the name. Broomsticks, but, yeah. Yeah. But when we say witch, we mean an agent of the devil. And it's not like you just, well, I was going to say, it's not like you just sign up, but you kind of do. You, you do. You, you just <laughs> sign up. So whether the, and, and the Puritans believe this, whether the devil came to you or you summoned him, you are. Enter a formal, um, pretty much a legal pact in which you sign your name in his book. So books, literature, very, very important to Puritans during this time. Um, You think of the religious scripture. Well, the devil had his version as well. We do the same thing today, right? You sign a contract. Right. Whether that's, uh, you know, 30-year mortgage, student loans. A marriage, you're you're putting your name, signing your name. But in this t- in this context, you're signing your soul away to the devil, and in exchange, he gives you supernatural powers, wealth, immortality, pretty much anything that you want. Uh, sign sign me up. I was gonna say, right? <laughs> it doesn't sound horrible. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Sign on the dotted line, and I win the lottery and live forever. I be kind of hard not to. I mean, that's that's tempting. And, and, but then again, temptation, right. And, and lead us not into et cetera. And 
so when we think about again witches, it is someone who has betrayed God. They have betrayed their baptism. They have betrayed their friends, their family, their community. They have turned and think of who these people are. These people are sometimes your family members, mm-hmm. uh, your neighbors. Neighbors you like or don't like, but still someone you see on a daily basis. Yeah, this is a small town, remember. 2,000 people. You have sat next to them in church. This is going to lead to a ton of suspicion. Yeah. This is going to up the finger pointing. One of these people is a witch, and that's just going to breed and foster this hate and this fear. And and I I can sort of, I can see where it comes from. Well, I mean, it doesn't take long to look through the history books and find some other instance of individuals being targeted. Um, Keep in mind that a lot of the accused, especially the first ones, were outcasts, Mm -hmm. people that kind of found themselves on the fringes of society. easy target. The other. Yeah. Because, like, yeah, easy target. Um, They were guaranteed to um, go down without, you know, anyone really listening to them. Demonization of an imagined other. Yep. Um, So So, that's that's what the witch was. So, again, when we talk about this, when we say these attacks, don't, Again, try to dispel that pop culture narrative because it's important to understand their religious beliefs. So that also brings us to uh, what we know and don't know. Because all of that, obviously, we know. We have historical records. We know what their belief systems were, these things. But the actual accounts of what happened here in Salem, um, we don't have. They are fractured. Magically disappeared. (laughs) If only. (laughs) Maybe we could magically get them back in that case. I don't think throwing them into the fire counts as magically disappearing. No, yeah. So we're we're dealing with a a splintered picture. We've got pieces, but not all the information. Right. It's like you're making a puzzle and you don't have the cover or all the pieces. So you're sitting here trying to put the you're like, I don't even know what I'm looking at half the time. Thankfully the Puritans were very good record keepers, and we do have a lot of documents. We have uh, some interrogations. Uh, we have personal journals. Uh, we, we have ha- some written accounts yep. post trials. Yep. Warrants. We have mm-hmm. warrants. Uh, but like what went on in the actual court proceedings? Do not exist. Gone. For as good as they were as record keepers, they also understood what that would look like a Years year from now, decade. From now, century from now. They were, they were covering their yes. tales. To the point where a gag order is issued by the governor, and it is outlawed to even speak about these trials. That's like the next year. That's not like decades down the line. That's like the next day. They're like, okay, cool, wash our hands of this. And he's like, how about how about we just put a law in place that says no one's allowed to print any material? Not just print. I believe talking yeah, about it yeah. was also included in that. So. If you dig through some of these principal characters, their personal papers, um, like Reverend Paris, we'll talk about him in a moment here. His sermons from that summer are also gone. gone. Yeah. So diaries, letters, people did what they could to, to sort of sweep it under the rug. Yep. And they did a good job of it too. Which leads us in this uncomfortable, nah, uncomfortable is the wrong word. Um, difficult. Yeah. We can't, we yeah. can't give you an absolute I'm going to use air quotes here, truth. Yeah. And as like historians, you learn what is truth because everything is filtered through a perspective. Sometimes I'll definitely say I think or I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's my interpretation of some of the historical data and, you know, from uh, experts and whatnot. But you're like that, that theory to me 
seems more plausible than this other theory. But some people are even like, well, I think this theory is more plausible. I'm like, I, I can't say no. Mm-hmm. They have equal weight, and you right. just ascribe to, to maybe one or the other. Um, so speaking of theories, before we do a, a little overview of what occurred, you want to talk about some of the reasons as to why? So we might not know what happened, but we can definitely pick out some things that, that happened that led up to that. What do you think is the, the leading cause? If I did, <clears throat> if you had to be like the one. No, don't. <laughs> I'm going to stop you right there. I hate that. I hate okay, that. Okay. Um, I hate when people ask me like, what did this? And uh, I wish there was one easy answer. So I, 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 I like an answer. I think I have. Okay. A, uh, I'll ask you okay, for your okay. answer in a second. <laughs> um, I think humans are incredibly complex And there was so much leading up to this incident Mm -hmm. that you can't discount anything. And I am very much on the side of a nuanced interpretation of what happened. It's not just one thing, but a multitude of factors. Historians have been trying to answer that question for literally centuries at this point. And it's not historian, not just historians, but starting in the 20th century, you'll see even psychologists, sociologists, medical doctors putting forth theories on this same subject. Everyone's yeah. trying to play detective, right? Right. Everyone's trying to provide something. And one in particular, and I'm we should just knock this out right away because I get questions probably on every single tour about this. Ergot poisoning. No. The fungus on the rye. No. Was it drugs? No. No, it wasn't. <laughs> but like I've even gotten shrooms in the water. They no. were on shrooms. <laughs> no. No, I'm sorry. It would be so much easier to say that like this was, you know, to blame this yeah. on mental illness or something in the bread. But unfortunately, or or fortunately, that theory was discredited almost immediately. So yeah. I like to say that it is a it is a perfect storm of a bunch of different things, and we are going to talk about those things throughout, but um, I have not one single answer. But I would love to hear yours. Conflict <laughs> with the indigenous people. It's a good one. <laughs> and I, you're like, so? So, again, we are colonizing their land. Right. We have just come off uh, two massive conflicts uh, with the indigenous people, uh, which leave thousands of people dead. Um, farmsteads, homes, cities. So where I'm from in Groton, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. um, there's a sign in the middle of the city that, that, that says Groton was raised to the ground. And I used to walk by this on my way to work at Dunkin' Donuts in, in high school every day. And it would say, and I just read it, you know, and I never really knew what it meant. Groton was raised to the ground and I'm probably going to get the dates wrong. So forgive me. Um, I think it's like uh, 16, um, 74, 1676, and then again, like 1689. King Philip's War? Yeah, yeah. So King Philip's War decimated Groton, killed the majority of the population. Uh, at The indigenous people uh, uh, killed everyone there. Because uh, obviously we're killing them and taking their land. Right. So anyone who survives is now a war refugee. Mm-hmm. You are coming back to these coastal cities you know, with nothing left, your farm is gone, half your family is gone. Then you have to move in with your second cousin, you know, and just you're adding to the burden of his household. Uh, there is more people, less food, less farms. Um, and you're bringing with you that trauma, a significant amount of trauma. Uh, and then this happens again in, in the late 1680s as well. Another conflict with the indigenous people slightly farther North. And again, more people coming back to these Boston-centric Salem-Gloucester cities as refugees. And it is that instilled, genuine, 
genuine fear of the indigenous people, um, that genuine belief in God, in the devil, that unimaginable sense of trauma that takes over this community. And, and that is that driving sense of fear. And it is from there that, in my opinion, all these other things start to blossom. Mary Beth Norton would be proud. (laughs) (laughs) If you're interested in this, check out In the Devil's Snare by Mary Beth Norton. I believe that when that came out, it was monumental. Mm -hmm. Like that was a theory that no one really had put forward up until that point. This whole idea that their conflict with the indigenous would result in this, you know, I I can't imagine. I watched my family get slaughtered by these indigenous people who I ascribe to be tools, of the devil yeah. and I come back. And all I hear is this religious extremism belief of the devil has come to destroy you. And that there may also be witches amongst you. You're like, yeah, and y'all have to remember that these folks believe that those indigenous were in league with the, with devil, the devil, like literal agents of the devil. And if you look through some of the the questionings that we do have, you'll find mentions of folks describing a native, basically. Yeah. And so when we look at that picture, and then you add into it like political instability. Social infighting between families, between towns. It's it just emotional depression, anxiety. Droughts and harsh winters. Horrible winters. Like if you're from New England or the, the North Dakotas, Michigan, you mm-hmm. know what a bad winter is. Um, and then couple that with a significant lack of food and firewood, uh, living in a frontier territory with that fear of uh, death by the indigenous people or just illness. And <laughs> they were scared and, and fear breeds these sorts of behaviors in people. I wouldn't say that there is uh a single straw that breaks the camel's back, but <laughs> there's a whole lot of straws. A lot of straws piling up in yeah. in lead up to that year. So should we dig into what exactly happened? Let's like get we to said, it. we're going to do a brief overview. There is, I mean, we could spend hours and hours going and, and over going the day to day, which not we today. are <laughs> not today. This is like a, a basic reference episode for you to just come back. And if you want just like yeah. a general. So when we overview. start talking about things in the future, you've already gotten a little bit of a, of a groundwork. Yep. Build up a good foundation, which you have to do in any historical context. Indeed. So the it all year is 1692 in 1692. <laughs> um, you don't do that on your tour, do you? No, I, 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 do I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I passed someone singing to his tour group and I looked back at my group and I was like, I'm not going to do that for you. Don't ask. <laughs> I'm not going to do a fun voice either. You, you, I'm sure you have a lovely singing voice. No, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I do too, but like, I'm not going to be singing in my group, That's fair. nor am I going to be doing these cheesy voices. So the year is 1692. It's at the beginning. We're in January and we're not in Salem town. We're starting, like we said, in Salem village. So this is what is today Danvers. It's going to start in the home of Reverend Samuel Paris. And again, that's, that's also important because uh, this is the Puritan, this is God's country. Mm-hmm. And then it is God's city. And it is now in the Reverend's house. Yeah. So he's been working for Salem Village. He's living with his daughter, Betty Paris, who's eight years old, and his niece, Abigail Williams, who is 11 years old. They're just kids. They're just kids. And actually, uh, 
Abigail is a refugee yes. from those native wars up in Maine, I believe, is where her, her and her family yeah. were so, originally. So she has, at the age of 11, is already a, a, a war-torn refugee uh, living in a sort of a distant relative's house in a frontier territory. And not just any house. Like we said, this is Reverend Paris's yeah. house. Paris, um, think fire and brimstone. Oh, his sermons were fear-mongering. It probably only touches on the kind of sermons. He, and by the way, when I say sermon, let's also expand on that just a tiny mm-hmm. bit. If you're like, oh, I'm going to church, and this is the modern era, you go to church for a couple hours on Sunday morning. Oh, no, it was all day. All day. You would sit in these pews hour after hour after hour after hour as, as he would preach from the pulpit about fear, repent, sin. sin. And this is driven into you. And most people got this once a week. Um, well, maybe a couple times, but the girls were subject to it every day, every day. So imagine living in that household. They day in, day out are listening to him practice these sermons. It's a cold winter. Dark. They're stuck inside quite a bit. Hungry, tired. And towards the end of January, they start experiencing these afflictions. They start to, to have fits. Um, and when I say fits, uh, don't think seizures. It's not that. Think more of like the grudge or oh, the ring. The exorcist. Ooh. I always like, no no head spinning, no yeah. ceiling crawling. Probably but, no projectile vomiting. No. <laughs> but if you've seen these, think when they have to lash these girls to the bed, when they are flailing, screaming, you know. Contorting. Limb flailing, scratching. Speaking in tongues. Themselves spitting up blood, like... This is what we're dealing with. Yeah. And terrifying to anyone witnessing. If this is part of your belief system, and this was real to them. If, if I saw an 11-year-old girl doing that even right, even today, if, if I, 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 would, I would be <laughs> terrified. Yeah. I do get questions as to like, why did they buy into this? Why did adults look at this, in, especially in a Puritan world where children are kind of cast off to the side? Why did these adults listen and buy in. Well, I think eventually when, you know, the first execution happens, you can't really back out. But this was not new. So there were afflicted children leading up to this. There were several cases over in Europe and I think at least one or two down in Boston. So this wasn't unheard of. No. And also there's this let's see, how do I put Reverend Paris as the voice of God uh would have been sort of untouchable by the devil. Mm-hmm. However, if the devil wants to go after the reverend, maybe go after his kids. Uh, so they were sort of the innocent. So, of course, they're the ones to get attacked. But since they're the ones getting attacked, they are the ones who can see their attackers. I wonder if it would have happened in someone else's home. If I, it, don't, I don't think it would have blown up the way it did. I don't think so at all. It's weird to think about. Just yeah. the little changes that yeah. would have changed the trajectory. I can only imagine what it must have been like for Reverend Paris to to see his niece and daughter screaming in pain on the ground in fits, bashing their heads against the walls. And and his his fear, I, I know that I, I I will probably never know what that's like. Mm-mm. So he calls upon a couple doctors. He has his suspicions and they confirm it. Uh, Dr. Griggs declares the girl bewitched under an evil hand. Mm-hmm. And it's this, this sort of sets it off. So now 
there's nothing medically wrong with them, so it must be spiritual in nature. Well, mm-hmm. let's question them. If they're being attacked, they must know who's attacking them. And we should mention it starts out with the two girls, but it expands to include several neighboring uh, children. I think there's eventually about like 12 to 15 or so. Yeah, and they're all about that age, age 9 to 19, mm-hmm. uh, about a dozen girls all suffering these similar afflictions. But also, again, keep in mind, they might be at the center, uh, but it there are neighbors who are then accusing their neighbors and family members, or I saw this woman doing or this man, or he was ascribing to this. So it's not just those young girls making all yeah, the and accusations. I don't, like, I don't want to blame it all on them either, yeah. because they're definitely not sitting at the front of this courtroom putting people on trial. Well... I mean, they're at the front they, they, pointing they, fingers, I, but they're not the ones that are signing the death warrant necessarily. No, no, Figuratively, yeah. in ways, yes. And I think some of those girls were definitely purposefully malicious. Yeah. Oh, that's always a complicated question. Yeah, we can't get into their heads. But I, I do think as kids are kids, some just went along with it because they really didn't know what else to do. So I think um, that this is a new experience for them they are now have a, a concept of their own agency uh-huh. uh, a concept of attention yep. uh everyone and not just their parents but from the governor on yeah down, the people in power are paying attention to them and they're just they're 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 12 14 16 years old girls or boys yep uh i mean they happen to be girls and this, but teenagers we all remember what it was like being a teenager and imagine having like literally the entire your entire world look at you and go Who's hurting you? Help us save God's kingdom. You you gonna turn that down? No. And also think about when you were young and you lied about something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or you did something wrong. And it's then kind of hard to go back on it. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when they are then saying these sorts of things. But anyway. So these young girls uh, make some accusations. Yeah, they give three names to start. So the three individuals targeted first, like we said, they are very much outcasts mm-hmm. here in society. We've got Sarah Good, a mm-hmm. poor beggar woman. Sarah Osborne, two Sarahs, look at that. <laughs> Hi, Sarah. <laughs> I, I know. Um, people mention that on tour yeah, too, I, a lot. They're I, like, nev- your name is on is these Sarah. a lot <laughs> on the memorial stones. I've never... Oh, yeah. 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 I, I definitely have a witch's name for sure. Yeah. Um, but they weren't witches, remember? Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so it's Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and then Sarah Osborne's uh, ill elderly woman. She probably hasn't been to church in like over a year. So she's, again, ripe for being a target. Yep. And then the final one is Tichaba. I'm sure you've all heard that name Probably. before. She's a, uh, one of the major players uh, in, in the narrative. She is an enslaved person yep. uh, owned by Reverend Paris, uh, lives in the Paris household, likely sleeps with the girls. Uh, a lot of you might get this sort of idea, and this is from some pop culture narratives, uh, some literature of this like Jamaican voodoo priestess. Or mother. like a Southern yeah. enslaved individual. No. Try to dispel that narrative. We know a little bit more today. Uh, we understand she is very likely from what is now modern-day Venezuela, Central America. Argentina, I believe. Yeah. Um, uh, there are several tribes in that area that, that bear a similar name to her. The, the, the Tichibatana mm-hmm. uh, is one of them. And we believe, uh, many people, and myself included, believe that that is probably not even her name, just uh, where she's from. And she was taken, and now she lives up here in the Paris household. She lives with the girls and interacts with them on a daily basis. 
these three women are arrested. They are dragged. At, well, at first they meant to take them to Beatles Tavern, a tavern over in Salem Village, but the crowd that had amassed in that time mm-hmm. between the uh, arrests being announced and those women actually being taken, they couldn't fit in Beatles Tavern. So they had to move it to Salem Village Meeting House, uh, <laughs> roughly about 500 people, literally the size of the population of the town jammed into this thing. And there in front of them stands the three accused. The two women are brought first, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, deny any affiliation deny, with the deny, devil. Deny, deny, deny. Deny. Tichba denies. Like anyone would. If then, you're accused of witchcraft and you're not a witch, of course I'm, I'm not, not a, a witch. witch. And then she changes her tone a little bit. I think she sees that things are not going well. And put yourself in her shoes. She is at the bottom of this social uh, hierarchy. Yeah. yeah, she she has n- pretty much nothing to lose other than her life and then going in like, that okay. courtroom. Two women above her in that social ladder have already been kind of disregarded. No one cares if they and say they're like, innocent. Do do? How do I save my life? Uh, so she tells a tale. I'm a witch. She admits to being a witch. Makes the decision. To change her, her tone. She's like, oh, you know what? I'm actually a witch. She tells a very vibrant story. And it is validating. All of a sudden, all of their worst fears have come to fruition. My God, there's a witch in Salem. We found her. She has met the devil. She has signed her name in the devil's book. I, I, again, I can't, I know that I cannot understand how scared they must have been. Mm-hmm. She is one of the linchpins in, in the this trial. story. Yeah. This picture she paints is radical. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's again, just, just giving them all the information they want. They keep pressing. And that's another thing they do is they keep pressing her for information. They keep, Oh, this, Oh, that, Oh, get, tell us more. Oh, you did. You met the devil. And their questions are designed. They're leading. They're, le- they're, they're leading, leading questions. Leading questions. So, it's like in today's courtroom, you, you can't say, were you at this place on Friday night? They would just have to say, tell us what you were doing Friday night. So you right. weren't led to an answer. And they were like, were you on the field on Friday night? And she's like, yeah, I absolutely When did was. you meet with the witches? Oh, I, I, Where did you meet with the, the witches? Field. I just told you, yeah. How we, long have you been a witch? Years. Yeah. You, yeah. And, and they, she just continues to go down, and then she admits to signing her name in the devil's book. Not only that, she admits to seen more than just her mark in there so she looked and they say well if you signed your name uh did did you see anything else nine names yeah or marks depending on how you interpret it but here's the thing she can't read or write so she doesn't know who they are so they are at that moment in time looking at in their minds three witches and there are nine other ones somewhere in in the area in the area in my opinion that's it right there that's that's the spark that's the main straw yeah that that's it so say she said yes i am a witch i afflicted these girls i'm sorry and it just ended there she probably would have been executed the two women before her probably would have also been found guilty because that's really where it was leaning and you never know. It may have, they may have not even executed them yeah. because before 1692, there are many occurrences of people going on trial for witchcraft and not actually seeing death as a result. 
but we can repent and these sorts of things because of the story she tells because it's not just those three there are nine witches in salem so what now let's find them witch hunts are on and this spreads like wildfire through the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Yeah. You know, they didn't have cell phones back then, but that did not stop <laughs> right? yeah. them. They didn't even have like a circulating newspaper. Like, oh. I wish we could go back and see like and some see type of press. It's just person to person to person in a matter of. But think of the most juiciest gossip you could oh. have. Like, <laughs> Goody, Goody Proctor's a witch. Did you not hear? I mean, that's something. And, and you got to remember, these are all very small towns. Everyone knows everyone. If you drop a name, people are going to know it. It's probably, you know them, you've met them, you went to church with them, it's your second cousin, your third cousin, your third cousin's married to your second, and that's who it is. And so neighbor, accusing neighbor, friend, families. Fingers are pointed at every type of, this always strikes me, every type of familial relationship other than father and son. So like I didn't know that. Yep. Grandparents, grandchildren, mothers, daughters, sisters, spouses. I mean, can you imagine? Right? My my wife. Ah, my stupid husband. Uh, You know what? That that one I do understand. (laughs) The catch twenty two on that though, as soon as someone in your family becomes accused, you could be a witch. The probability of yourself being accused after that is considerably higher right? because how do you live in a house with a witch and you're not a witch yourself exactly so this is feb- late february early march february 29th march 1st and then we go march april may with nothing but accusations no trials there's about 50 to 75 people uh, who've been accused of practicing witchcraft and they're just sitting in jail People just start to pile up. And let's not forget to mention that these jails were not meant for this. They weren't, like they were meant for short term stays. Yeah. Like a couple people for a couple days, maybe. Because punishment, we all know. So today, obviously, you get sentenced to jail. Oh, 60 days, 60 years, somewhere mm-hmm. in between. We know what punishments were back then. And you've probably not thought about it because you like getting your selfie picture, your family photo in the stockades. <laughs> But that's the punishment. Right. Whipping, flogging, stockades. Branding. Ear cropping, nose clipping. Very horrible punishments. But they find themselves in a situation where they have these accusations, but they can't put them on trial. So everyone's just being shoved into these jails. And why can't they put them on trial? Political instability. We don't really have a governor. Okay, technically we have a governor. They don't know that. But he's on his way. We have a charter. We didn't have a charter. They don't know that. They kind of know that. So today, imagine not knowing. I don't even, there's no real modern day comparison. Mm -hmm. So we'd had our charter revoked. Uh, Our new governor had been meeting with the king in England, across an ocean. You need a boat to sail that takes several weeks. So we have a new charter. The new governor is on his way. No one really knows this. He's going to get here, they know, in the spring. And to clarify, the charter is kind of like our like our mini constitution for the colony. Has all the rules and regulations. Right, and which would essentially set up this court. Yeah, so with no governor, what do they do? Well, we're just going to put people in jail. And wait for him to get here? Yeah. He'll, he'll get here in the springtime. So May rolls around. <laughs> and this is an odd narrative that I play out in my head, right? There is no historical record of this happening. Uh, I just, it's just one of these things you think about late at night while you're going to sleep. Um, William Phipps, new governor, been in England, gets a charter. Cool. 
awesome. He's coming back across the Atlantic. He's all excited. He's the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. What's up, guys? Yeah, woo-hoo. Right? He's got, a, he's got a governor's office. He's in Boston. He's got money. He lands. And I'm sure there is someone, an aide. He gets summoned to a meeting. Again, no historical record. I just played this out in my head. Someone's like, yo, hey, Governor Phipps, I, we, 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 got, we got a problem. There's uh, like 50, 70 people sitting in jail for the crime of witchcraft. I, I, his eye... Like he, that's yeah, literally never happened. Never. And he's like, sorry, <laughs> come again. You're like, well, you're the governor now. And governor Vips, let's be honest. He's incredibly inexperienced. Inept. Totally inept. Never held a political office. No. Failed treasure hunter. Yeah. Accidental treasure finder. Governor Phipps, we've got a whole episode about him, so we'll talk all about him uh, and his failings, uh, <laughs> of which there are many. Yeah, kind of dropped the ball here. Yeah. but um, And why that plays out the way it does, but he doesn't actually form a court to deal with these trials until May 27th. So we have roughly 60 to 70 people sitting in jail, jails that were not meant for long-term stays, Governor shows up with a new charter for the colony. He p- appoints a court, and it's called the Court of Oyer and Terminer. That means to hear and determine, and that's important. Yeah, this is a court that's solely designed to take care of these trials. It exists outside of the traditional judiciary. Magistrates come to Salem. They set up shop. They start putting people on trial. May 27th is when it is formed. June 2nd is when it uh, is first convened. And our first witch is executed on June 10th. We go three months of nothing but accusations and then full steam ahead. And almost in all cases, when these folks were brought forward, it would be, and there was a jury. Keep note that there was a jury. It wasn't the magistrate. Yeah. I mean, if you were a white male property owner. And your friends were the judges. and Yeah. It was was a stacked jury, let's say. Stacked jury. But in almost all cases... When the evidence was presented, they were found guilty. And we should talk about evidence because another thing that made this court unique was the acceptance, if not reliance, on spectral evidence. So I mentioned a little bit earlier about how these girls were the ones who could see their attackers because in the Puritans' belief system— this was spectral in nature. What I mean by that is that these witches aren't coming up to these girls and like hitting them in the face. They're n- there's not this physical violence. Mm-hmm. They're sending their specter or their spirit to do crime. And the court can't see. It's not like you have a a, a murder weapon to bring forward or anything. You have these strange marks. Who who did that? Who 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 hurt you? Uh, and it's not just the girls either. Yeah. Other ac- accusers will say, you know, goody so-and-so came into my bed last night or the specter of goody so-and-so. So it's Or, or I saw uh, the specters of creatures or I saw a person and then saw a, a specter of a creature um, or this shadow or this noise in the darkness. Things that you can't prove. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's what their reliance on this spectral evidence was. And this gets down to witches' marks and familiars and, and we're going to talk about all yeah, we'll dive stuff. so much further but into the details later on. What we need to sort of push home is that it is reliant on this concept of spectral evidence. So June 10th, and then trials, executions, trials, executions, trials, executions, and that's it. They run for about five months. 
we're going to get into everything that happens uh, in in those five months. Don't get us wrong, but it does end, and it ends very quickly. Uh, so many people are like, well, how did it all end? That's and it's got a lot to do with Governor Phipps. We'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. But um, basically, on October 29th, uh, he just ends the court of Orion Terminator. He says it must fall. Their reliance on special evidence they've sort of realized has failed, and we're done. So within that time. 20 lives are lost, not including the folks in jail, and roughly over 100 families suffer the consequences. I would say almost everyone in the community is is touched in some way, shape, or form. Oh, yeah. Whether you are accused, an accuser, you lose a, a family member, whatever the case may be. And we're going to get back into some of the things we've already covered, but this is a, a surface narrative again. But five months, May 27th to October 29th. That's fast. It's very fast. And we're still talking about it 330 years later. That's remarkable in the context of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, an event that is so, uh, burns so bright, so fast. So that's our overview, brief. Uh, I know we, we came up with a lot of names, a lot of time frames, a lot of scenarios. We're going to get to the bottom of pretty much any question you might have right now. Yeah, especially uh, big characters too, yeah. like Governor Phipps. Well, we're going to end up. Why going did this happen? Oh, what about details. this person? What about Andover? Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry. We will get, stick with us. We'll we'll get through all of that. What about burning? Let's take care of that one okay. now. Um, so all these people in Salem, uh, you mentioned 19 were executed. 19 were hanged. There are no burnings. None. No one in the Americas was burned. That is almost exclusively a European thing. It's also not hung. People are hanged. Pictures are hung. The reason for that, most of you are like, well, witches were burned. Witches, yeah, yeah, yeah. Witches were burned in Europe. The Pope releases an edict, and this is several centuries prior, uh, making witchcraft a crime against the church, which makes you a heretic, and heretics are burned. King Henry VIII, however, because uh, obviously he doesn't like the Pope, uh, he's like, no, 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 witchcraft is a crime against me. It's a crime against God, and I am God's. It's a crime against the crown. Capital crime, capital punishment is that you are to be hanged. So a lot of people ask where. Believe it or not, the history on this is a bit foggy, and we really didn't know for sure up until somewhat recently. Recently. Yeah, so for centuries, and if you look on all the old maps of Salem, like 17th, 18th century maps, you'll see a Gallows Hill. Off to yeah. the bottom west of, of the map. And everyone knows Gallows Hill. Like, right. I feel like it's pretty, it's well-recognized. I mean, there's a huge water tower there now. It's a, it's With a big a, witch on it. Yep, it's a common term in the city. And you know what? Hey, if I saw a place called Gallows Hill, that's where I'd think I, it, I think it that, went down, yeah. right? So this is where we thought it was for centuries. But in 1921, we've got this historian, Sidney Purley, who identified a somewhat smaller hill adjacent to that larger hill, Gallows Hill, called Proctor's Ledge. In 1936, the city of Salem purchases that land and decides to call it Witch Memorial Land. But then it kind of just sits there. Just they didn't do anything? They didn't do anything. Okay. We get this whole idea revisited in 2010. Some local historians start kind of digging into primary source documentation. They're able to confirm based on uh, neighbors being able to see that procession, be able to see the executions, that That it was indeed 
Proctor's Ledge. So they're looking at the primary sources of people who are like, I saw this from my window. Exactly. And they're like, there's no way it's at the top of the hill. Exactly. You know, it took us quite a long time to get here, but yeah. it is widely regarded as the actual location of those executions. So it was confirmed in 2016. A memorial was built and was dedicated in 2017. July 19th. For the 325th anniversary. And that's located sort of in a weird location. It's behind a Walgreens. Yeah. Unfortunately, when you come to Salem, you may have noticed a lot of places are missing. A lot of homes have been torn down. A lot of locations are lost to history. And and unfortunately, this is just the case. Burden of history. But we do have that memorial there. Um, There's no parking. Uh, I think you can just sort of pull up, pull over the side and and get out and and, uh, take a Put your hazards on. Yeah. And that's at uh, 7 Pope Street. Definitely tucked off to the side. Yeah. You have to be looking for it. Yeah. So if, if you put that in your GPS, you'll you'll get there. You can walk, actually. I mean, it's about a mile outside of town. But It's uh, not the prettiest walk. If but... you go down Essex Street. Okay. Come down yeah, all yeah, the way yeah. at the end. Yeah, I yeah. know. That, that'll do. And so then you just take a quick right and sort of a quick left or a slightly less quick left and you'll get there. Right. Yeah. If it's a nice day. But that's not the only memorial. Right. And, probably, I, and, and I don't think that's the one most people right. think if, of. If you've been to Salem and you've been to the memorial, you're like, wait a minute, that's that's not what they were talking about. We have one right in the heart of downtown. And, and you'll probably visit that on one of your tours if you take one in town. Uh, I visit it. You do I, as I well. I, my uh, tour on the trials ends. I like to refer to it as the battleground for the tours. <laughs> if you linger through that area in October in the evenings. Oh my gosh. It is, people are throwing down the gauntlet, but that one also is a beautiful memorial, a little bit larger than the one that we were just talking about dedicated in 1992 for the 300th anniversary. And a cool little fun fact, um, Ellie Wiesel was the individual who dedicated it. The Holocaust survivor. Yeah. I remember reading night in, in mm-hmm. school. So that was a cool connection to make his experience then and, and how he taught a fantastic speech, by the way, uh, you can usually find it online. Uh, sober, if, if nothing else to take a, take a read over that. Uh, and Hey, when you come here, uh, walk around the memorial, leave a flower, leave a, a memento, um, take a moment and, uh, reflect on, on the tragedy. However, we all know that Salem wasn't where all of this started. Right. It started in Danvers. So we do have a memorial over there as well. So if you're interested, you got to rent a car, uh, drive over there. And actually, while you're over there, you can check out a few other locations tied Mm -hmm. to the trials. That is uh, the Rebecca Nurse Homestead and the Paris Parsonage, the piece of land where Reverend Paris's house once stood. Unfortunately, it's just, it's the bare bones of the foundation left, but... In the case of the Rebecca Nurse Homestead, I believe you can still go in yep. and actually visit there the are, space. There uh, are grave markers there as well, likely where she lies and... George Jacobs. Yes. Um, but that's in Danvers. So if you are sticking to Salem, uh, there are a few other locations that you can check out that uh, have ties to the trials. Uh, let's see. Of course, you have the Witch House, which we'll be talking about. We also have 10 Federal Street, the site of the old witch jail. <laughs> Spelled with a, that big capital G. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. The uh, restaurant as today is called Rockefellers, also known as the Daniel Lowen Company building. That was the location of the first church. Mm-hmm. 
And then if you're feeling risky, well, don't, don't do this. Don't do this. <laughs> uh, the uh, courthouse itself would have stood in the center of Washington Street, sort of between the Masonic Temple and Opus, sort of right there. There's a plaque there uh, that says adjacent uh, to this area. So it would have been in the middle of the road. So the the trials, like the actual trials where it all goes down right there. Courthouse is long since gone. Uh, but if it's October on a Saturday. Uh, There's a good chance those streets will be closed. And you can go and, and stand right there and, and take a moment. I can honestly say as tour guides, we both did this throughout the year. We reveled in the opportunity <laughs> to bring our folks right to the middle of Washington yeah. Street and say, this is it. Like, this as, is the closest we can get you to where Because normally I'll sort of stand uh, near the town hall. You do the, yep. the same thing. And I'll sort of point. I'll be like over there, sort of right right, right there mm-hmm. where, where the white truck is. Right. And uh, in October when they close the road, you can take people and you can literally say right here on, on this very spot. Uh, one other thing that we get asked or I, a lot is sort of, well, how do you deal with this walking this line, right? Because obviously Salem is wildly commercialized, but then we have this tragic history. So I actually get this question quite often, and it's really a complicated issue. Salem's identity as a city, especially as a tourist city, is extremely complex and Obviously, the Salem witch trials are a stain on our history, on Salem's history, on the countries, and it was an incredibly dark time to be sure. And yet, if you visit today, you may it, we may look more like a Halloween party. Take the the memorial for example we just talked about. If you come during October, if you look off to the left, you're going to see Salem Witch Village with smoke machines and um, hot dogs and a guy on a megaphone advertising tour tickets. Apple cider donuts. Yeah. Oh, they're so good. But like, <laughs> you know, it's it's obviously a, it's a very different vibe than if you came any other time of the year. Yeah. And there's people who are on both sides of that fence. Exactly. I get some folks that are angry, downright upset with the amount of kitsch they see. But then on the other hand, I had a guy ask where our Harry Potter bar was. Like, why Why don't we have one? We, we don't. You may see people in robes. <laughs> at bars. At bars in October, but we don't, we don't have any use for that. I, I think the main reason for that is what they don't see is that that, craze is only in October. Right. So the other 11 months, it's it's not like that. And sometimes you'll get visitors that come in full costume, yeah. but it's few and far between. Yeah. You're always going to have opportunists seeking to make money off of pretty much anything, even a tragedy such as the trials. Mm-hmm. And I think given our jobs, one could argue that we are in some regards profiting off of this story. But I think what it comes down to is making a conscious effort as tour guides, as educators to tell the full story, even if it's dark, even if it's complicated, if anything, that should make it even more pertinent to tell. Absolutely. And I think as visitors, people also need to make a conscious effort while they're here to learn what really happened and why it's so significant. These were people, they had families, children, homes, livelihoods, and the actions taken by those who condemn them it doesn't really take much to see the parallels to other instances of persecution throughout history. It's, I, I've gotten that question a few times like, oh, what do you, how do you think this relates to some things in modern context or other historical contexts? And uh, you're like, well, if you're drawing that parallel, it, it's too easy. Yeah. It's too easy. 
So let's take this horrible story and learn from it. It's it, it all comes down to learning the real history, to knowing that there was no one burned here in Salem, to know that there were no witches here in Salem. And you can go and you can go to your witch store and you can uh, get your crystals and get your readings. And if you walk away with both of those things, that's going to help us understand the real history of Salem. That's just about all we got for you on uh, our little background on the trials. And remember, just a brief overview. We've got a lot more coming. So hopefully uh, piqued your interest. Hopefully you've got a lot of questions and hopefully we'll answer them in the coming months in, in our episodes as we, we do some deep dives into the trials. In the next episode, we're going to be giving our first interview. Ooh. There weren't any witches back in 1692, but we definitely have a lot of magic in the city today. Anton James, the official magician of Salem. We're going to be sitting down and talking with him in the next episode. Till then, uh, subscribe, leave a review, and uh, go tell three of your friends. And be sure to follow us on all these socials. We are at Salem the Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Hello at Salem the Podcast. And of course, if you are visiting town, please feel free to take a tour with either Jeffrey or myself. Links to both of those are in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you later. <laughs>